1: Welcome back to another episode of the Two Tongues Podcast. We're Getting back to Whitehead today. i make a promise to you. I'm going to make a bold promise to you. We've been doing Whitehead for a long time. It's a big book. It's complicated. There's lots of things going on. Lots of things I don't understand. And I'm trying to. Um, so I think what I'm going to do, I'm going to try to wrap it up in two more episodes. So I don't know if I can keep that promise, but I'm going to try. So... We'll be done with Process and Reality um, after two more episodes following this one. This one may be a little bit on the shorter side, um, but it was a fun one, so so I'll dive into it. This one really falls along the lines of the areas of philosophy that I find the most interesting, the things that I've kind of always gravitated towards. Now, we've talked about them before, but um, branches of philosophy like ontology for instance in metaphysics you know thousand dollar words if you want to look them up but um ontology is a branch of metaphysics metaphysics is well it's the philosophy of um well it, it involves some speculation but it's the philosophy of origins digging into first principles origins um where did i come from where did the world come from what is it made of how does it work Really, really fundamental questions, the kinds of questions that today is more or less occupied by, by science. But philosophy leads the way. Philosophy has always led the way. Uh, it's true today as much with, you know, fancy uh, questions and problems in quantum physics, where you've got philosophers of mind, as an example, um, doing great work on trying to define those problems, um, help scientists figure out what experiments they can run, that sort of thing. Um so, so that it's going to fall into the, I mean, you can think about it like science. Um, I, I, part of me wants to say pre-scientific, but it's not. It runs through, you know, the philosophy runs through science from the beginning to the present. So you can't really separate the two. Ontology, on the other hand, is a branch of metaphysics that really studies the nature of being. And that's a can of worms, as you guys know. There's the obvious questions about the nature of things, very similar to what we were talking about with metaphysics. What are things? What are they made of? How do they interact? What does it mean that they interact? Um, you know, all kinds of questions come up. But there's also another question that comes up, a question that is tackled more by religious traditions like Vedanta Hinduism, let's say, than it is by any philosopher. But there are philosophers that have done it, and Hegel and Heidegger and Schopenhauer and, and others come to mind. And this is the idea. Um, of what is being, right? So we ask the question, what is the nature of being? But as soon as we ask that question, then we have to also ask what is being? And that is a far more complicated and interesting question than you might imagine. And this is what Whitehead is going to get into today in the section that we're reading. We're going to talk about ontology. We're going to talk about metaphysics. We're going to talk about substance, you know, the idea that things, whatever that means, are made of something. You know, what does it mean to be physical? What does it mean to be material? We usually think about that like in terms of substance. Atoms, atoms are the things that make up things. And this is how we usually talk about it, at least in the modern modern day. We can get a little bit more hippy-dippy, we can get a little bit more quantum and talk about quantum fields and energy and dimensionality and all kinds of things that are way above my head, Uh, but it's fun to think about, it's fun to talk about. This has origins that go way back, this type of thinking has origins that go way back to ancient Greece and um, ancient China and um, all kinds of primitive tribal people uh, from prehistory where we have evidence of this kind of most clearly comes from Greece, like like we do with much of philosophy, early philosophy. And if you've read any of that, and we did some episodes on it in the past, on the pre-Socratic philosophers, one of the things that comes up a lot is speculation about what the world is made of. So we're talking about substance. What categories can we break everything down into and say, everything in the world fits into these categories? And you may have seen some of this before. You know, Aristotle has his own ideas um, about this, but lots of other pre-Socratics uh, as well. And what they'll say is things like this. This will be familiar to you probably, and maybe not just from, from the West, but from the East as well. Um, the old, in the old days, they would say, the world is made of earth, water, fire, air, and ether, Something like that. There's usually five, four or five elements that these early philosophers would suggest make up everything. And there's some insight in there, obviously, because we think along the same lines now. Um, I couldn't tell you how many elements are on the periodic table, but over a 100, right? over 100. So we don't, we don't have just five elements. Now we have over a hundred, wherever the real number is. Um, but what we're doing is something very similar. I mean, the ancients would look at the world. And they would say, you know, I can see, let's say, combustion when something burns, when lightning strikes a tree when we when we stoke the, the hearth fire and we cook our, our meals or whatever. There's something going on in this combustion that's not like anything else. It also seems to be contrary and opposite to something like water, which quenches a fire, which destroys a fire, where where oxygen, air, let's say, will stoke a fire. And so you can start to see that there's a relationship among these elements that seem obvious to us from our intuition. You know, earth, things are made of earth that are solid. You know, there's metal and stones that come from the earth. There's the earth itself, the soil. Um, And so we can have all kinds of conversations about how they work together, um, what the relationship is between these five elements. But these philosophers really believed that some mixture of these five elements and some you know, unexplainable components of their relationships explained everything in the world around us. And it's, it makes common sense. It's something that doesn't seem at all unusual to our modern scientific kind of worldview. However, there were other philosophers, even in that same time period, that didn't agree with this notion of certain fixed elements. Nobody could agree on how many there were, by the way. But there were people that said, look, that paradigm doesn't work at all. And we're going we're gonna to talk about Heraclitus today. And he's one of them. Um, but there's also another one that comes to mind. His name is Democritus. And I don't know if you guys know Democritus. Maybe you know a guy named John Dalton. Um, John Dalton was a much more recent scientist. He's the one that gets credit for atomic theory. He's the guy that invented the notion that everything's made up of these irreducible, tiny, tiny particles we call atoms. And that piece of history is bunk because Democritus said that in, uh, you know, 400 BC or whenever it was he lived some somewhere back then. Um, so, so Democritus really is the first person to give us this idea of atomic theory. And um, Heraclitus, on the other hand, is going to throw a wrench into all of that and say something like, There is only one element. Things are only composed of one thing. And one thing is all that exists. And you might think that that is less intuitive. And it kind of is. You look at Out the World you see these different things out there separated by space, separated by time, separated by consciousness. I'm not the same as you. I can tell that because I can look at you and touch you, interact with you, and we don't agree with each other. And clearly, we're not the same thing. But Heraclitus says, no, not so fast. Think about this. Think about things like how connected everything is. The entire ecosystem is connected. Any change to any one area of it is going to have a cascading effect to the whole system, think about Think about this idea of life and matter originating from the sun, which we've talked about before. A star is born, all of the leftover gases and and uh and and heavy elements and things that get ejected from the sun as the gases begin to burn all that stuff gets captured by the gravity of the sun it gets turned into. Uh, planets eventually, uh, you know, solar bodies that uh, you know, perhaps will change and evolve over time to be able to uh, sustain the creation of something like life. You know, this is all how, what played out in our solar system. And then, of course, all of the material that, that makes up our bodies as well as the planets is stardust, you know, just sun stuff. Meanwhile, the sun shines down on the earth and, and all of the life that's, that's been created, all of the chemicals that turn into the life that's been created, they sort of suck at the teat of the sun, right? All of the energy the sun produces creates all of the energy for the life and the action that happens on earth, for procreation, for everything else, creates the cycles and the seasons, and everything goes back to the sun. We're, we're made of sun stuff we subsist off sun energy from the plants and animals we eat everything for you know rolls back up to the sun you add a couple of thousand years of scientific advancement and we understand that the sun is only one star and every star rolls up to this one thing we call the singularity or the big bang right everything is connected everything shares an origin and everything is one there's this idea that we're going to talk about today that it was first phrased this way, at least for me that when I was introduced to this phrasing, by Ian McGilchrist. Uh, love Ian McGilchrist, by the way. If you have a chance to listen to a lecture or a podcast by Ian McGilchrist, he's an author and he's written all kinds of awesome stuff, but he's just got one of those great voices, so it's worth a listen. But he said there's this idea of the coincidence of opposites, and I'm not telling you anything extraordinary. I'm not telling any you anything you don't know. It's just the way that he phrased it. He talks about the coincidence of opposites, which just simply means that whenever you have whenever you have a set of opposites, you they always and only occur together and you can't have one without the other. Okay, so this comes up when we talk about taoism so beauty and ugliness this comes right from the tao de jing um, you can't have beauty without the recognition of ugliness you can't have ugliness without the recognition of beauty they're mutually counter-dependent those opposites do not exist on their own you can imagine if everybody in the world was beautiful ugly would have no meaning right because you can't you don't see the contrast you don't have the example Everybody's beautiful, so there is no ugliness. You don't even know what that means. But here's the kicker. Nobody's beautiful either, are they? Because if everyone is beautiful and no one is ugly, not only do you not know what ugliness is, but you have nothing to contrast it to, right? The opposite, beautiful, has no meaning because it has no opposite So this is a way for us to think about the coincidence of opposites. And the idea that there might be five fixed elements or that there might be one is something like this. One and many, right? These are opposites. And you can imagine there is no meaning behind one without a contrast, without many. And there is no meaning to many without the contrast of one. And so we end up in the same sort of situation. And that leads me to my first section, which is I'm just going to call Hume. The reason is, we've we've said this before, but Whitehead relies on certain landmark philosophers, and David Hume is one of them. John Locke is another, Immanuel Kant another, Rene Descartes another. But really heavily he focuses on Hume and Locke. So, for this first section, we're going to focus on Hume. It begins like this. The philosophy of organism can be best understood as accepting large portions of Hume and Kant. Okay, now he's going to give us a a quote from David Hume, and it goes like this. Nothing is ever really present with the mind, but its perceptions or impressions and ideas. External objects become known to us Only by those perceptions. To hate, to love, to think, to feel, to see. All this is nothing but to perceive. Those perceptions which enter with most force we may name impressions, and under this name I comprehend all our sensations, passions, and emotions. By ideas, I mean the faint images of these in thinking. Okay, so that's our first Hume quote. So I don't know what you may think of that, but there's a couple things I want to point to. In the beginning, when he says, nothing is ever really present with the mind except for perceptions and ideas. What does he mean by that? Well, he says, he says, external objects become known to us only by those perceptions. So this is a question of knowledge. It's how do I know anything about myself? How do I know anything about the world around me that I find myself in that seems to be external to me? How do I know any of that? I know that through perceptions or what he calls impressions and ideas. So I look out at the world and I see things and I hear things and I taste things and all that. and They have relationships to each other and all that qualities and quantities and all that stuff. Those are impressions. I perceive them, right? They're sense perceptions. He says that they enter with the most force. And what he means by that is, well, c- kind of what the word impression sounds like. I don't really have a choice and I'm not really a player in, in the experience. It's something that happens to me. It's imposed on me, right? All I have to do is open up my eyes, And I have all these experiences happening to me. Right now, I'm staring at a computer. Uh, I can see the microphone. I can hear my voice in my own ears, which I hate, by the way, but you understand. All of this stuff is happening to me without my will. I can't turn it off, right? So it's impressed on me. And then there's the ideas. There's thoughts so I have these impressions, and then I, I analyze them, right? I have some thoughts, some ideas that form in my mind about these impressions I'm having. You know, maybe I look up at the sun. I experience it. I had that impression. And then I think to myself, God damn, that's bright, right? So that, that's an idea. The sun is bright that I had based upon this experience, that this, this impression, And so the point he's making here is that we don't really have any intimate knowledge of the sun. What we do have is the idea of the sun that we hold in our mind. We have a perception, we have a sensation, and then we have whatever thoughts, whatever ideas we hold in our mind. And I've said this before, but it's not as though I'm walking up to the sun's door and I'm knocking on it and I'm, you know, he opens it up and lets me in and I give him a big hug. I don't have a way of intimately knowing the sun, you know, I can't get that close to the sun even, right? What I do have is an impression of the sun, an idea of the sun. So the first distinction Hume makes is that there seems to be a difference between the reality of something and what we have access to in terms of that reality, and then he says something interesting that I've been noodling on for a while now. When he says, to hate, to love, to think, to feel, to see, all of this is nothing but to perceive. I think generally, the last bit of that, to see, we would agree, that's, that's a perception. That's what it means. That's one way in which we can perceive. But what about the rest? To hate, to love, to think, To feel. You know, our senses are ways in which we can experience reality. It's hard to really define when you start thinking about, but it's like what I'm touching and seeing and tasting, right? All of these things that come from my sense perception, it's ways of knowing the world. And sometimes I could taste and feel and smell and touch the same object. And it's all ways of knowing this particular object, the way it tastes, the way it feels, the the way it smells. What about feelings? Have you ever considered feelings to be perception? Just like sight or touch or taste. You have an impression of something, some object, and it makes you feel a certain way. Maybe it's a snake and you're afraid of it. Isn't that a way of of knowing the world, the feelings, the emotions that you have, the reactions that you have? It's kind of interesting, right? And even to think to form an idea of something, that's a way of knowing it I look at look at the sun, I get that impression of it, the way it looks, you know, all of the qualitative aspects of it and then i then I form an idea in my head. Isn't that idea, even though it's like a representation of the sun, it isn't the sun itself? But isn't that a way for me to know it? You know, like I built—I build a model of something I'm trying to understand. Strange, right? I think there's something to that. That feeling and thinking are no different than seeing or tasting or hearing. They're—they're—they're they're t- they're ways of perceiving and ways of knowing. I think that's interesting. And so, if we separate this idea of the thing itself, the sun in this example, from the idea of the sun that we hold in our mind, and then what you're really faced with here is this idea of the world that we experience being representational. It's not the world really. It's just the way we experience the world. We don't know anything else. So, all we have are impressions impressions of what that's a that's a good question right because we don't have access to objectively what reality is we're always experiencing it through the lens of our limitations through the lens of our senses and through and through our limitations we know that when we see a cat on the street what we see is a cat on the street what we don't see is the universe of complexity that that cat is made of we don't see the cells We don't see the parasites, we don't see the symbiosis going on, we certainly don't see the chemicals, the molecules, the cells, the DNA, the atoms, we don't see any of that. And there's an absolute universe of complexity going on. And that's the difference between the reality of the cat and the representation of the cat, the idea of the cat. So when I ask, when we're getting impressions from the world, what is it an impression of and how do we know? Is the sun what it seems? Is the world what it seems? Or is it completely different? We have no way of knowing. Whitehead says what we're getting impressions of, he calls the objectified world. But remember, to Whitehead, the objectified world is not any different from you. All of reality to Whitehead is an experience. What you and I are, are a part of that experience that has a subjective perspective. We, we seem to have a sense of self. We have a perspective so that we're seeing the world from a particular vantage, that, you know, from behind our eyeballs. A particular place, a particular state, a particular time. And we are no different than the external world. We're all one experience to Whitehead. So the impressions that we're getting of the objective world. Those are really impressions of exactly the same thing that we are, experience. So the impressions we receive from the world are something like a mirror of ourself. Isn't that weird? What about the ideas that those impressions facilitate? Both impressions and ideas are ways of experiencing that which can be experienced, whatever that might be. It seems to us that that which can be experienced is an external reality, an external world. And that includes ourselves somehow. But we simply have no way of knowing what that actually is or means. All right, then he goes on. He says Hume divides both ideas and impressions into simple and complex. And adds, quote, all our simple ideas are derived from simple impressions, which are corresponded to them, and which they exactly represent. He also says that eternal objects, that's what Hume calls simple. And so Whitehead talks about eternal objects being like... um, well, pure potentials—potentials potentials for experience—they're maybe the the kind of most basic building blocks of of what can become an actual experience. And here, I want to push back a little and say, this is one of these examples where I know there's a reason for for making a distinction between simple and complex experiences, because the world of our experience is like that. Some things are simple; some things are far more complex. But I just don't know what the justification is for this classification system, what the reason is for making it so complicated. And this is, only, this is not even scratching the surface of how unnecessarily kind of complex Whitehead um, makes all of these nuts and bolts in the book. So, you know, I'll, I'll at least say that I'm not sure this is super important uh, in the grand scheme of things. But I do want to point out a little bit of uh, some inconsistencies where I see them. So first thing is, it's not clear when he says that in Whitehead's terms, eternal objects are what Hume would call simple. Because it's not clear whether he's calling them simple ideas or simple impressions. You know, Whitehead does call them potentials for experience. But whether we refer to impressions... Ideas, or experience in general, all of them seem to require a subject, right? Those things happen in a mind, right? They belong to a mind. And I wonder what that is to Whitehead. You know, he said before that the mental pole, by that I think he means the mind, like what gives reality a mind are actual things, things that have been actualized you know, things like you and I in the real world. And that contrasts to this sort of unexperiencible, unknown part of reality that Whitehead calls potentiality. You know, so whatever it is that happened, whatever, whatever it is that was before the Big Bang, from a scientific perspective, we can maybe merge the two together and say, whatever it was before the Big Bang is what, Whitehead would call potentiality. And it seems like to him that, that doesn't have a mind because it needs to be made actual. It needs to be made materially real before it has a mind. And so I ask, when you look out at the external world and you receive impressions and you know that those impressions are They're a representation of yourself. There's nothing different between you and the outside world. Everything is one experience according to Whitehead. So where's the mind? Is it your mind? My mind? Some cosmic mind? You know, where's mind? Not only does Whitehead not tell us exactly exactly. He even discredits this idea, especially the idea of a cosmic mind. He goes out of his way to discredit those ideas. And I find it to be interesting because it, maybe I'm just not getting it, but it seems to be lost in this. Like, what is the source of mind? If it only exists in the actual world, certainly you could say that the potential for mind must exist in the potential world. But to Whitehead, that's, that's it's not a right question. All right, he goes on. He says, The idea of substance is nothing but a collection of simple ideas united in imagination. Fuck, what a statement. This is actually another one of Hume's statements, but he adopts it here. And he says, The idea of substance, now, this is the idea of what things are made of, the building blocks of reality, whatever that means. He says, It's nothing but a collection of simple ideas united in imagination. So I don't know about you, but ideas seem ethereal, numinal. They don't have substance. I don't know how many ideas you can stick together and hope to eventually come up with something that exists in the material world, governed by space and time. You know How many ideas do you have to stack together to have substance? I don't know what that means. It doesn't make any sense to me. But again, to Whitehead and Hume, the idea of substance is nothing but a collection of simple ideas united in imagination. So simple ideas seem to be something mental. Again, mind comes up. So something mental becomes something physical, something material, becomes substance. And they're united in imagination. Meaning what? Meaning that they're one within a mind. That's the place where imagination is, right? In a mind. So it may be that, it may be that what, there's basically two ways of looking at this. Either substance isn't necessarily physical and material. It's not necessarily an atom or a wave on some sort of medium. Maybe a substance can be mental, And this idea of of physical reality that we think is real, maybe that's something like an illusion. Or we could understand this by saying that ideas interact and or otherwise accumulate to become physically real to at some point breach that barrier from potentiality into actuality. So I don't know what you might think about that. But as far as I can tell, those are our two options. That brings us to the next section, which I'm going to call Heraclitus. All right, Whitehead says that all things flow is the first intuition of men. It appears as one of the first generalizations of Greek philosophy in the form of the saying of Heraclitus. So I don't know if you guys know the famous saying of Heraclitus. Um, there, There are several, but I think what he's referring to is this. No man ever steps in the same river twice, for it's not the same river, and he's not the same man. Goosebumps, baby. There's also another one that says, there is nothing permanent except change. You've got an interesting little paradox there. There's nothing permanent except change. So you can, you can understand that transformation, that flux, that change is the thing that's eternal and permanent, even though it's being change in itself is always changing. You would say, that's not permanent, and yet it never goes away. It's very much like this idea of process that Whitehead hinges his philosophy on, something that's always changing and yet is eternal. The process of changing is eternal. All right, so I don't know what she might think about this, but that all things flow is the first intuition of men. All things flow, all things move, all things change. You can see lots of like obvious examples of this that would make an impression on you if you were a prehistoric person, if you were a pre-scientific person. You can see, obviously, the changing of the, of the seasons, the changing of the phases of the moon, the changing of the um, constellations in the sky the rivers flowing from the mountains to the sea, um, plants and animals dying and being reborn, everything constantly changing, everything in a constant state of flux. And then you might say to yourself something like, exactly like what Heraclitus said, there is nothing permanent except change. And no man ever steps in the same river twice. Even if you walk through that river every goddamn day, You are not the same man. Every every time you pass that river, you are different in a thousand different ways than you were when you walked through it the first time. And every single molecule of that water and every single stone that you step on are going to be in some way different each and every time, if not entirely different. So Whitehead says, if we are to go back to that ultimate, integral experience, that experience whose elucidation is the final aim of philosophy, the flux of things, is one ultimate generalization around which we must weave our philosophical systems. So he's saying that this idea of flux and change is so integral to experience. can't be, It can't be removed from our experience, you know? What is experience without change? There isn't any, right? If nothing ever changes, if nothing ever happens, it's hard to imagine that without action that there's anything like time. Without change that there's anything like action. There's, any, there's, there's nothing to be experienced without change. And I want to point out that Whitehead is referring to an ultimate integral experience that he calls the flux of things and everything in Whitehead's universe is experience, as you remember so what is the ultimate experience what's the integral experience I mean it sounds like he's talking about God it sounds like he's talking about the thing that makes experience possible or the thing that kicks off this experiential perspective that we call reality what is that to Whitehead the flux of things it's the process that he talks about. What is the ultimate primary experience? If no actual entities exist, right before these actual entities, these these real things, these real experiences start to exist. Before that, what is experiencing? And what does it mean that that thing is? Flux It's hard to imagine What experiences Before there is anything To experience What's the first thing Experiencing Right The first actual entity The first experience That exists What's experiencing that Because everything Has to exist Within an experience According to Whitehead That's what the organism is It's a nested Series of experiences So the first experience, if there was a first experience, must exist within an organism. What is that organism? And what does it mean that it's flux? We like to think about God, let's say, as where the buck stops, the uncaused cause. What does it mean that God is flux? You know, it does make me think of this process idea. does make me think of the Tao from Taoism, the way, the way of things, how things are, how they exist, how they interact, you know, what the laws are that they follow, the way. It's interesting to think about God as something transforming or the pattern of transformation or the rules that govern the pattern of transformation. You start to get this idea of God as numbers, you know. Something super, super abstract. And then Whitehead says, what is the meaning of the many things engaged in this common flux? Okay, so is it one or many that flux? Is it one like Heraclitus says, or is it five like Aristotle says? Is it one or many that flux? Are they irreconcilable opposites, one and many? Or does their mutual counterdependence make them one, regardless of being many? Is many an illusion? Is oneness an illusion? How do we know? And this idea of mutual counterdependence so, when we're talking about opposites, that's what we're talking about. One can't exist without the other, they're mutually counterdependent. Right? And the idea of mutual counterdependence, making them one thing, is interesting. It, it was brought to my attention recently listening to an Alan Watts lecture. I'm going to talk more about Alan Watts in the future. That guy's blowing my mind. But he said something about the flowers and the bees. He said that they're one organism, because the flowers couldn't exist without the bees pollinating them. And the bees couldn't exist without the flowers to make their nectar, to, you know, to make their food. And I got to thinking about that, and I thought, God damn, that's exactly right. They're mutually counter-dependent, the bee and the flower. And because you can't have one without the other, they are one organism. Isn't that interesting? You get rid of the flowers, the bees are no more. If you get rid of the bees, the flowers are no more. They're one organism. And I think that helps understand what this idea of the coincidence of opposites, the mutual counter-dependence of opposites, what that means, that many can be one. Not just many, but opposites, things that couldn't be more different from, from each other. They're actually one. All right, he goes on, he says... But there is a rival notion, antithetical to the former. This notion dwells on permanences of things. The earth, the spirit of man, God. He says the best rendering of integral experience is often found in the utterances of religious aspiration. In the first two lines of a famous hymn, a full expression of the unity of the two notions in one integral experience. So he's going to quote a couple of lines from a hymn, and it goes like this Abide with me, fast falls the even tide. It's one of them hymns from the 1800s by by a guy named Henry Light. I wasn't familiar with it, uh, but apparently it's a very famous hymn. Maybe I should have. So he's saying here this example, this little poetic utterance from religion Abide with me, fast falls the even tide. And this is giving us a contrast between flux and permanence. Again, a set of opposites. Flux and permanence. So he says, again, it's antithetical to the idea of flux, but there's this idea of permanence, that there are things that are constant and always change. Maybe that's, excuse me, never change. Maybe that's God. Maybe that's the laws of physics. Maybe that's spirit or earth. You know, something like that. And so we can think about the basis of reality being flux, or we can think about the ground of reality being built upon some permanent things. And we generally think about the laws of physics that way, although there's many physicists that believe there are other, uh, other realities, other um, universes where the laws of physics are, are different, or even that the laws of physics that govern our universe change over time. But maybe over long enough stretches that we never notice. So it's hard to say. Are flux and permanence mutually exclusive? So ask the same question. Are they are they mutually counter-dependent? Right? You can't have flux without permanence. You can't have permanence without flux. So let's get back to this um, abide with me, fast falls, the even tide. How does he explain this? He says... And the, uh, the first line expresses the permanences, abide, me, and the being addressed, so presumably God. These are permanent things to the, in the perspective of the hymn. These are things you don't expect to ever, ever, you know, be gone. Then he says, the second line sets these permanences amid the inescapable flux, fast falls the even tide, right? That's Flux. He says, here we find the complete problem of metaphysics of substance. This is the idea of one or many. He says, those who start with the second have developed the metaphysics of flux. But in truth, the two lines cannot be torn apart. One and many, permanence and flux. They're the coincidence of opposites. They're mutually counterdependent. Can't have one without the other. And then he brings up Plato, which he often does, because remember Whitehead is the guy that said all of Western philosophy is but a footnote to Plato. He says Plato found his permanences in a static spiritual heaven. right? That's the world of forms to Plato. And his flux in his forms amid the imperfections of the physical world. So you've got these perfect permanent forms that never change. And then you have the expression of those forms in the world, That are all imperfect and all subject to change. He says, the things that flow are imperfect in the sense of limited and exclusive of much they might be and are not. So things in the world may be expressions of permanent forms, but they're not perfect expressions. And they're limited, you know. they're missing all of the things that they might be and are not. So they're not perfect, they're imperfect. And so in Plato's world, you've got the world of forms and the world of reality. And those things are one thing, right? Opposites but mutually counterdependent. Can't have one without the other. And one side of that is permanent, fixed. And one side of that is flux. And I think there's something to that. Something paradoxical, but something important. And I've said many times, and I I had this realization with w- with my own mystical experience that when you have when you have moments when you're especially thinking along these lines deeply, and you have periods of cognitive dissonance, periods of paradox that you can't resolve but you can't avoid, I think those instances are flashes of something very deeply true. They require you to think deeply. They they elicit you to think deeply about them. And it's almost beyond your control. And I think there's something very, very interesting about that. All right, the next section I'm going to call, As Above, So Below. If you remember, we did some episodes on Hermeticism before, and this is also ancient philosophy. And this phrase, as above, so below, comes from Hermeticism. It was also adopted by um, alchemists in the Middle Ages, and what it, what it really means is that the world is modeled on heaven, as above, whatever it is that God is like, let's say, that is what the world is like, as above, so below. And you can understand that when you go back to this idea of mutual counterdependence, and you can't have one without the other, there's something like that. There's also this idea of infinity that comes up when we talk about God, it's part and parcel to that conversation. And... These ancient philosophers would often say things like, the infinite can be found in the finite. Like everything you need to know about God, you can find out by studying any one instance of it a rock, a tree, a flower, a human being, the cosmos. And it doesn't matter which one, that the fullness of the infinite is to be found in every single finite thing. As above, so below. All right, so let's jump in. Whitehead's talking about flux again. He says, there are two kinds of fluency. One kind is concrescence. In Locke's language, the internal constitution of a particular existent. So I'll refresh your memory if you don't remember concrescence. He basically uses this word to talk about the process of being made real. So you can think about, you know, God creating, you know, something from nothing. This is an illustration of what concrescence is in religious language. If you use his language, he's going to say that there is a type of reality called potentiality. And it has to become actualized. That's what it, that's what it wants to do. That's what the process is in process philosophy. It's potential becoming actual. And that's the idea of concrescence. Something that doesn't exist in, in the physical material world, subject to space and time. It exists some other way. Numinal, some other way. You know, that becomes real. It's made flesh, like, like an incarnation, like Jesus Christ. Like the world is potential, God being made real. And that is concrescence, when potential becomes actual. And he says the other kind of fluency is transition. Transition from particular existent to particular existent. In Locke's language, he calls it the perpetual perishing. So remember, in Whitehead's model, experiences come together to form a concrescence. And when they do, they're made real. They're felt, they're experienced, they're brought. they're brought forth into the world of experience. But when that happens, it's always creating novelty. It's always creating something new. And so that process continues forever. This process of synthesis, of the many becoming one, of potentiality becoming actuality. This is something that's constantly changing and happening over and over and over again. So even in this idea of concrescence, there's a perpetual perishing. There's a transition from one reality to the next, to the next, to the next. He says, each actual occasion, remember, an actual occasion or an actual entity is is an experience that's been made real. So each actual occasion defines its own world from which it originates. No two occasions have identical worlds. So so I, I explained this before when I said that to Whitehead, all of reality is, is experience. One experience. And within that experience, you have these subjective perspectives. That's the you and the I. That's any any anything really, but we have the experience of being that subject, of having the perspective, the world through my eyes, the world as it seems to me, right? And, every, and everybody's got their own, right? No two occasions have identical worlds. And I don't know about you, but doesn't that remind you of never step into the same river twice, right? No two occasions have identical worlds. Goes on, He says, concrescence is the name for the process in which the universe of many things acquires an individual unity. Right? You've got all these multiplicity of experiences that find a way to synthesize to become one thing. This is the process in process philosophy. And that idea, concrescence, is the many becoming one. So you've got the many, you've got one, but you really have a synthesis of them. You've got the union of opposites which I've talked about many, many times. That's something that in mythology we call the Ouroboros. The union of opposites is that symbol which appears at the beginning of each and every one of our religious traditions. The symbol that we think about, that we come up with when we're tasked with, with describing how things got here, how something came from nothing, how the cosmos began, how time began, that the ideas that human beings come up with coalesce into this idea of an Ouroboros, the generative union of opposites. And he says, actuality, right, to be made real. Actuality means nothing else than this ultimate entry into the concrete from mere non-entity. Now, pay attention to his language here. Actuality means nothing else than this ultimate entry into the concrete from mere non-entity non-entity. Okay. So actuality, the here and now, the real material world arises from potentiality becoming concrete actuality. And where this potentiality exists, what this is, Whitehead calls mere non-entity. I understand what he means by non-entity. He's trying to make a distinction between the knowable world of our experience and whatever it is that makes that possible. Because it's not knowable. It's, it's prior to experience. It's what makes experience possible. It's not knowable. He calls that non-entity. But worse than that, he calls it mere non-entity. And I think mere is a strange descriptor for what I see as potentiality. The same thing that everything actual arises from. Something I might call God. I have no problem with that. And Whitehead calls that mere non-entity. As though it's something petty. As though it's something almost not important. Mere non-entity. He he described eternal objects as pure potential previously. Things without which experience is just not possible. That's potentiality. I don't think mere is the right word for that. I think it's the opposite of the right word for that. And it gives us more evidence for a bias that I'm seeing in Whitehead, a bias against idealism, against the idea of mind, against the idea of... God, really And you can see that because he talks about Something he calls the creative advance In exactly the way I would describe God But Whitehead has his own Explanation for God He includes God in his model And it's down the list You know, it's, it's down further Than the creative advance It's like, no What God is, by definition Is not down the list of the hierarchy It's at the very top Or it's at the very bottom, however you want to look at that it's not somewhere in the middle. So Whitehead is going to refuse to, to consider a mind existing outside of, of organisms. And he's going to write off the idea of God as something that is emergent from process, but won't call process God and won't call the creative advance which drives process God. And I'm a little bit lost in that, in that sea of ambiguity. All right, he goes on, he says, an instance of concrescence is termed an actual entity. So something that's been made real. There is not one complete set of actual occasions. There's not one complete set of these. He says, a set of all actual occasions is a standpoint for another concrescence, right? Because when, according to Whitehead, when all experience is unified into a concrescence, that it creates something novel that has to also be unified into a concrescence. So that process continues forever. So you can never have a complete set of, of experiences to wrap your head around, to analyze, to understand. And he says, thus we can never survey the world except from the standpoint of a concrescence. And this is an interesting idea. It's This is why I named this chapter As Above, So Below. Because what he's saying here is that concrescence is what happens over and over and over again. It's the goal of the process. And because that's what you're seeing over and over and over again, that's what process is driving towards. All you've got to do is examine a concrescence. It doesn't matter which. It doesn't matter if the concrescence is the very first one, if that's if such a thing exists, if it's the most important one, if such a thing exists, if it's the most complex one or the simplest one, it doesn't matter. Every concrescence is the key to process. So it's like this macrocosm-microcosm idea. As above, so below. The infinite and the finite. The many and the one. And the one and the many. You know, every concrescence is the thing that you want to examine. Is the thing you want to know. It doesn't matter that there are infinite infinite of them. An infinity of them, rather. Any one is as good as any other. And, the, and all of the answers... The whole infinity of everything you need to know can be found in each and every concrescent. Then he says, the term feeling describes concrescence. And this is important because remember, everything that's real to Whitehead is an experience. And how those experiences come together to become something real, to, to pass that that bridge from potentiality into actuality, is It's through feeling. So you have one experience who feels potential experiences into itself. It brings them into itself. And because those those, um, potentials have now been felt, they've been experienced or incorporated into this organism that already exists. That's how potential becomes actual. That's how things are made real, by being absorbed into or synthesized into something that's already real. And you can see in that model why I point to the beginning and say, what was the first experience and what was there before experience? Um, you know, there's holes there that I don't think are sufficiently closed. So the term feeling describes concrescence. He says, thus, an actual occasion is caused by a process of feeling. To be made real is caused by feeling. He says, the integration of feeling proceeds until the concrete unity of feeling is obtained. So there's a process where feeling is being integrated. It's like not something that happens all at once necessarily. So this unity of feeling seems to equate to a concrete substance Something like that, right? And and Whitehead said that substance is nothing but a collection of simple ideas. Right. And 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 this final unity that he calls satisfaction, right? That's the final synthesis of feeling. So a concrescence ends in a satisfaction when when that's when that synthesis is is complete, let's say. Satisfaction is the culmination of the concrescence into a completely determinate matter of fact. Actuality from potentiality. He says the first phase is pure reception of the world in its guise of objective datum for aesthetic synthesis. It's very wordy. So this is another one of those instances where I really don't know what justification Whitehead has for breaking down this process of concrescence. Like, how can he possibly know that the process of concrescence, if it, if it exists, if it's real, has phases that are identifiable? Like, how could he possibly know? This is the little bit of speculation that I pointed to in the last, last lecture here about Whitehead that I, I feel like is reaching. And it, and it for me, it makes it less credible. But let me just push through. The first phase is pure reception of the world. That's like the impression that we talked about earlier when we were making the distinction between impressions and, 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 uh, and ideas. He says, in this phase, in this phase, feelings are not absorbed into private immediacy. It's like the feelings exist, but they're not being brought into the you know into, into myself or into the actual entity. And he says, in the second stage, many feelings are transformed into a unity of aesthetic appreciation, immediately felt as private. So in some second stage of this concrescence process, the feelings then are are brought in and become part uh, part of the existing experience. And that's how they're made real. So the feelings exist, then they get incorporated in first phase, second phase, something like that. All this talk about aesthetic synthesis and aesthetic appreciation, I'm not sure about. I don't really know. I mean, I know the word aesthetic means beauty. It has a relationship to beauty, but I'm not really sure what he means by it. To me, it seems like it's related to the creative advance because beauty and creativity seem to be related, but I really don't know what he means by this. He says, in the second stage, the feelings assume an emotional character. All right, so I want to go back to this first sentence where he says, in the first phase is pure reception of the world in its guise of objective datum. So why would reception of the world be in a guise? What does he mean by that? Seems weird, right? It's like you're getting the impression which is automatic. It's not under your control. So where does this disguise come from? I mean, I, I get this visual of the veil of perception that we continue to kind of see as we're talking through this, the idea between what subjective reality is for us versus what the objective world might be behind it. We don't really know. Is there a, is there a veil between us you know, that, that, that keeps me from seeing the, the full reality? And there's something like that going on here, the guise of objective datum. And I think what he means by that goes back to something we talked about earlier. The objectified world, the objective datum he's talking about, it's not external at all to the subject or the percipient, as as he likes to say. Remember, everything is experience. Everything is one experience, one concrescence, one organism. So the external world isn't external to me. It only seems to be. And I think that is the guise, maybe, that he's referring to. All right, then he says, no entity can be divorced from the notion of creativity. An entity is at least a particular form capable of infusing its own particularity into creativity. So we know this, we know that when, according to Whitehead, when experiences come together and and form a concrescent unity, that something new is developed, something novel was created. So you know that you can't separate this idea of creativity from experience. And that's interesting, and I'm not sure what that means. I think it may mean something like this. Tell me what you think of this. So if you can't separate the idea of creativity from experience, then creativity is something like the essence that's shared by all things. And I wonder if that's more evidence that Whitehead's God proper is the creative advance. And this idea of creative advance, like even the word advance, to push forward, you get this visual visual of process constantly moving. It's constantly moving. The creative advance seems to denote motion, movement, progress, or a path pattern, a way, the Tao, something like that. All right, then Whitehead says, to sum up, there are two species of process, macroscopic process and microscopic process. The macroscopic process is the transition from attained actuality to actuality in attainment. The microscopic is the conversion of conditions into determinate actuality. I actually think that's beautiful, but I understand it's wordy and a little bit complicated here. The macroscopic process is the transition from attained actuality to actuality and attainment. This is the idea of reaching a concrescence, um, having this novel new thing as a consequence, and continuing on to synthesize that and have a new concrescence. So this is that overarching macroscopic process. And he says the microscopic process is the conversion of conditions into determinate actuality. So the conditions are whatever experiences are there that are being synthesized into one new concrescence. The conditions cause this particular determined outcome, actuality. And that strikes my ear with an interesting ring. It reminds me of something little bit more a little bit more scientific it reminds me of the way physicists describe the Big Bang. I'm okay calling the Big Bang potentiality because that's exactly what it is. It was the potential for the cosmos, whatever that means, you know So I can call the Big Bang potential. And I remember hearing scientists many on many occasions describing how the conditions were just right. For the big bang to occur Because you can ask Why did the big bang happen When it did Like why did it happen at all Presumably there's an Infinite expanse of time Before the big bang Presumably how How, How would we know Maybe there was no time before the big bang Maybe there was an infinite amount of time Before the big bang But at some point the conditions became just right Whatever that even means What conditions I don't know But the conditions became just right for the singularity to expand. And the whole of the cosmos and all of the energy and the space-time parameters and dimensionality and everything that we call reality emerges from the conditions being just right. And it's just like what Whitehead says here. The microscopic is the conversion of conditions into determinate reality. Isn't that interesting? What are conditions? Whitehead says, The notion of organism is combined with process in a twofold fold manner. Okay, so remember, Whitehead calls his philosophy the philosophy of organism. He also calls it process philosophy. So these two words are key under to understand what he means. The notion of organism, he says, is combined with process in two ways. The community of actual things is an organism. So when all of these experiences come together to form a concrescent reality, whatever that is is an organism. You and I are organisms. You know, the the whole cosmos is an organism. He says, but it is not a static organism. And we know that. We know the cosmos is constantly changing. We know we're constantly changing. The engine behind that, according to Whitehead, is this creative advance. It's this process that continues and is always churning out novelty and changing reality. He says, it is an incompletion in process of production. Organism is an incompletion in process of trying to complete itself. He says, the expansion of the universe is the first meaning of process. And the universe, in any stage of its expansion, is the first meaning of organism. So every synthesis, every concrescence along this infinite process is an organism in and of itself. And and that organism is constantly shifting and churning and changing and moving along the creative advance. That's what he calls process. Every organism is a determinate thing. A oneness process is a flux, and so you have process and organism in a synthesis here, very much like Plato did with his world of forms and and, and uh, you know the finite world you know the, of reality. He says each actual entity is itself only describable as an organic process. It repeats in microcosm what the universe is in macrocosm, as above, so below. It is a process proceeding from phase to phase toward the completion of the thing in question. Thus, each actual entity, although complete so far as concerns its microscopic process, is yet incomplete by reason of its objective inclusion of the macroscopic process. He says, each actual occasion experiences its own objective immortality. Whew. That brings me to my conclusion. So this dichotomy of many of the many and the one, of ontology and substance, you know, and what that means, reminds me again of the Ouroboros. The many and the one are, are opposites in union. And this mythological idea of the Ouroboros, which I've described to you before but I will again if we go back to our earliest myths it's symbolized as the god Apsu and the goddess Tiamat from Samaria they're both gods of water of the abyss of the infinite abyss you know the, you can think of them as potentiality but you've got a female Tiamat and you've got a male Apsu See, so they're opposites one is the salt water Tiamat one is the fresh water Apsu so you've got you've got differences among them. You've got many things going on, and yet they're both water. They're both one thing. And they're symbolized as being one thing, as being together. And you can think of the, the symbol of the Ouroboros, which is the serpent swallowing its tail. It's like born from itself. It's self-contained. The yin and the yang is, an, is another good example. You've got this dichotomy. And when these Opposites are united. When they're one thing, it's a generative force. You know, when the male and the female come together, what happens? They're generating children. They're generating offspring. And that's what happens in our religious stories. The primordial god and goddess come together and they create the cosmos and they create all the natural forces and all the gods and goddesses that that govern them and all that. The generative union of opposites. And I can't help but to point out this dichotomy comes up in the world of computation with the ones and zeros behind the matrix, the ones and zeros behind the computer I'm staring at right now. On and off, you know, opposites. The yin and the yang, being and non-being, they're mutually counterdependent. You can't have one without the other, and so they are one thing, as the great Alan Watts said. The push and pull, force and counterforce, the ebb and flow of things, this is the flux. It is the internal struggle of self-experience that we call reality. The one becomes estranged from itself in order to make itself other, in order to see in its self-contrast that it is that I am, as it says in the good book. Mind and matter, permanence and flux, potentiality and actuality, process and organism. These are just other ways of conceptualizing the divine unity, the coincidence of opposites. So, Whitehead adopts Hume's formulation of what experience is, which become fundamental to his process philosophy. Both Hume and Whitehead agree that experience is are only means of knowing the world or reality, external to ourselves, and that the bridge between them consists of impressions and ideas. We know ourselves and the world through the veil of perception, secondhand, in the form of sensations, feelings, and thoughts. Each of these arise within us, within our mind, and do not constitute an intimate knowing. It seems to me that we'd have to become one with the external world to accomplish such a thing, to really know it. This, of course, is exactly how Whitehead describes process. He states that potentiality becomes actuality through the process of concrescence, which is the many becoming one. Now, with statements like many and one, potentiality and actuality, we find ourselves in need of some kind of synthesis. Going back to Hume, we see the proposition that the multiplicity of the world, the many, arise from a collection of ideas, as he said. This, as far as I can tell, implies a mind as the origin and resting place of these ideas we seem to have a mind, a oneness, within which lie the many. We have a synthesis of one and many, an Ouroboros. And much the same way, Plato's eternal world of forms, you know, that's the one, finds expression in the multiplicity of the world. A paradox, but a synthesis nonetheless. This brings us back to Whitehead's particular brand of metaphysics. He refers both to process and organism in describing it. Process is the flux, the many, in his synthesis. An organism, the one concrescent reality. Reality is both and requires both simultaneously. There is a mutual counterdependence, like with any set of opposites, which provide for both, excuse me, which provide for both or for nothing at all. We cannot have one without many, life without death, permanence without flux, process without organism. And because the process of organism continues infinitely from concrescence to concrescence, there is no hope of ever capturing the full picture. The limit does not exist. But since every concrescence is the one, and the process of novelty creating the many, we need not capture the full picture, do we? In each concrescence, we have a complete microcosm reflecting the ultimate reality, as above, so below. When we examine any concrescence, what do we find? Whitehead tells us that we find a feeling it is by experiencing potentiality that it is made real and made one, that it is unified in feeling. This is concrescence, the very act of creation. Here again, we find ourselves in that uncomfortable situation where we have to ask, but what is having the feeling exactly? Is it mind in the cosmic sense? which Whitehead repeatedly rejects? We could argue that point, but it is mind nonetheless. It is mind which experiences, mind which feels, and mind which is responsible for the actual world. Whitehead tells us that actuality is the ultimate entry into the concrete world from mere non entity. Remember that? Maybe it shouldn't be surprising that the man who disclaims mind as fundamental over and over again should use the word mirror to, to describe the source of all actuality. He diminishes mind while acknowledging it as the non-entity from which all things arise. Fitting, I suppose, because it's a paradox, but also a synthesis.
0: Well, there you have it.